We want for every creator to have an opportunity to bring their creations to the world, get rewarded for it as well. In practice, what we do is we're coming founders. So we work with a lot of founders building natively on Nier and trying to actually help each other through founders helping founders model. That was Sasha from the Human Guild. On today's episode, we go all the way back to the founding of Nier and the curious way in which all the OG names and big brains that you may recognize eventually cross paths. Then we go deep into a conversation about the meaning of the open web. I really enjoyed this one because he sent me a bunch of resources to read beforehand so we were able to dive deep, but also because this has been captured in the saying in the vision for Nier, the future where users own and control their data. But what does it really mean? With this conversation with Sasha, I was able to break through new grounds of understanding and I have to say, I have never been more excited. And finally, we talk about Human Guild. What it is, what they do, and in particular, we talk a lot about gaming, the challenges, the opportunities, some of the upcoming projects to be excited about, frameworks for growth, and much more. Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy our conversation with Sasha. See ya! Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I am thrilled to have with me Sasha from the Human Guild. <laughs> Sasha is a relentlessly resourceful at Human Guild, host of the Next Creators podcast, and he brings a wealth of experience to the new ecosystem. Welcome, Sasha. Why don't you Let's start talking a little bit about yourself and your pathway into the near ecosystem? I know that you've been in San Francisco for 15 years, so I guess it's been a lot of absorption from the tech industry there. Yeah, how far do you want to go? As far as you want to go, I have a lot of questions because, yeah. I'll, I'll let you go ahead and then I'll cool. show the gaps. Cool. Sounds good. So yeah, I came to US 2007, so 15 years, pretty much almost to the day, actually. Funny enough, it was also roughly summertime at that time. Started new life essentially here. Worked a lot of different odd jobs first, just like normal jobs, like mover, work in restaurants, all kinds of things. So my path to New York is very different from like majority of people in early team on Nira. Put myself through the school afterwards. So I studied physics back in Belarus. In US, I started from scratch. I kind of went to City College, studied for two years. Went to Berkeley afterwards for the business school for the undergrad. Didn't learn a lot there, I would say, but it was a good social experience. At the time, business school was preparing people mainly for, at least for the undergrad level, mainly for finance stuff. They were competing like on salary levels. And I guess for them, it was important to move people to ABC, accounting, then making consulting. I went for banking, but my primary draw there was technology industry. So at the time I was already getting passionate about tech industry and I joined Catalyst working for this legendary investment banker. He started Morgan Stanley Tech back in the day in, after seeing Steve Jobs and his <laughs> MBA class and yada, yada, yada. So I liked the technology side of working in finance in technology mergers and acquisitions. I didn't like the finance as much side of it. And then I tried to start my own company after that. So. Blew successfully through all of the savings while trying to, with my friends, to start online booking software for veterinarians. So I worked in like animal healthcare industry in the startup and it didn't work out. It was like very hard to do two-sided marketplace. And then after that, decided not to go back to finance. 
and went into sales, business development, worked in MuleSoft. At the time, was pre-IPO integration software company, 600 people. So when I joined a year into it, I felt like it was too big and I was looking for something like 10 times more roughly. And I was lucky enough to join MemSQL. MemSQL is a database company out of San Francisco. Now it's actually called under a different name. It's called Single Store. They rebranded. It's no longer about mem in memory stuff. And in MemSQL, actually, that's where it went more directly into Nier. I met Alex Kidanov there. He ended up becoming co-founder of Nier. At that time, he was first employee of MemSQL. He was there for five years. He was like already on the way out as I was joining. He was a bit bored, wanted to explore new stuff. He wanted to work on artificial intelligence. At the time, it was very interesting coming up. Funny enough, like now it's also coming up on this kind of potentially big pre, I don't know, pre, what's the word, pre-singularity kind of moment for artificial intelligence. But so anyway, at the time he wanted to do this, he pitched it to MemSQL to work on this. MemSQL didn't have opportunity to pin up new like R&D department or something. They like started trying to survive at the time. So he left to pursue this and he was a very curious, smart engineer hobbyist in artificial intelligence. He didn't have any experience in it through his journey in two different AI ideas. One of them being consumer apps, they were building kind of kind of like AI assistants for the phone. He met Ilya. So Ilya joined that company as a first employee, actually funny enough. And so it was also interesting. Alex was trying to recruit somebody else in this dinner, but Ilya was the one who also happened to be at the dinner and was at Google and like really getting bored there. This is near.ai. Yeah, that's near.ai. The first one actually was called xix.ai, and then it became is that because near.ai once. Is that because Elon Musk sued them for copyright infringement over his kid's name? <laughs> no, but it was a pretty big reason there to restart. So what happened was their first idea, I think it was not really taken off. At some point, they lost interest in terms of the consumer side of it. And so they left the business guy who was building it together with Alex, who was all of the money they raised. They actually raised at the time like 400000 or something. So it was kind of like both engineers left the company, but the company still has all this money. And so XX continued on its path while Alex Melia co-founded Near AI, which was the second AI iteration at the time. And that was the one where they were exploring the opportunity to automate all of, all of the software engineering. So they had this model, they had a lot of questions for ACM, for the competitive programming competition, and they had a lot of answers to those questions. And, and those questions will be asked in English, and then they would have output in, in code. So they had a bunch of those labeled as correct. So that correct. is the prompt actually for this episode, because I was asked last year to do an interview in Spanish with a big Spanish YouTuber, she's from Argentina. In doing my research on Nier and Ilya and the team, I went as far back on Ilya's blog post on Medium to find that Nier.ai article. And I was reading yep. through it and I was like, okay, so Nier, I assumed Nier blockchain. But if you go back, this is August 2018, Nier.ai, it's mind blowing. It's yep. like, we have this concept, like there's been some breakthroughs in the technology from previous competitions. So they're entering this international competition with this new idea and you can see like the vision and the output where it is going it's yeah i reckon we can write this code that like just writes code and basically takes out a lot of engineers i also like the humility of like if you follow the progression of the project like the humility of maybe we were a little bit ahead of time uh with the idea like it wasn't mature enough or, or maybe the market wasn't mature enough 
which is probably for the best for all of us as they go into near. But yeah, it's really nice to start putting all the dots together because I know that a few of you, I think it may actually just be Ilya and Alex Shabenko. I think they went to the same high school in Ukraine. <laughs> so for a moment, mm-hmm. yeah, I, yep. I started doubting like how many of our core outstanding members from like the Ukrainian Russian speaking community are from the same high school. And then I started thinking this high school must be something like the X-Men school or something <laughs> for gifted children. And they go out there and they start creating this amazing technology. So yeah, just wanted to clear up that you're not from the same school, not from the same area. Yeah, I'm from, yeah, from Minsk, from Belarus. Uh, I've been to Kharkiv once, just passing by. I hope to make it one day there, but right now with a war, it makes it very hard. So you all meet in San Francisco through these many businesses. Yeah, and then Alex Kidanov, he grew up in Izhevsk, Russia. So he grew up in this like very small town in Russia as well. He actually grew up close by to Eugene. Eugene the Dream. Small town next to him that actually competed in Yeah, exactly. Eugene the Dream. I actually just talked to him earlier today. He and Alex, they actually know each other for like a couple decades, if not more, by when their kids are like essentially competing in competitive. That's amazing. I think it's really good to clear up because the world is very large and I think it's easy to just put people into buckets. And some people may have the misconception that you're all from the same region and you all grew up together and there may be some sort of a kleptocracy going on which you just like recruit from the same circle but it's good to know that you'll actually come from like very different mm-hmm. cities towns actually countries and you've met through work and like that marriage if you meet at a high level yeah. maths competition physics competition startups in san francisco yeah i would say near overall early team came from a couple different networks so first of all there was quite a bit of AI people there. Like for example, Max was from AI background. He was working, I believe on this in Google. Ilya, obviously he was working on TensorFlow at Google. I was there in the right time in the right place. Was one of the first like three, I think, code contributors to TensorFlow. And then there is Bowen, who also was studying AI. Bowen Wang. And shout out to Bowen, organizing today worse so now, funny. top bloke. Yeah, and funny enough that when Bowen joined Near, it was after Pivot, so it already became Near Protocol, but he was not told. So he was on the first day of his work coming from AI, studying AI, coming to work, and people like, you know what, like we're no longer doing AI actually, but you can stick around. <laughs> and the second part of the network came from MSQL, so that's the database where I worked. There was this guy, Pi Guy, he was also early in Near. And he was working in MSQL. He was also actually very instrumental in us getting the first funding for Neo Protocol. You can also tell the story too. And there is Misha as well. So we spent a lot of time convincing Misha to quit MSQL and join Neo. And there was, in a way, some big catalyst for when she was joining. So it was this period of time in August of 2018 where the team went from three people to nine people. In nice. And MSQL officially went out of business and presumably is now suing us. <laughs> yeah. Actually, there was quite a bit of tension at the time for Poach and Misha, but after that, I think Nikita, who at the time ran, there's this whole story also with Nikita, who ran MemSQL and, and why he was able to recruit a lot of this ex-competitive programmers, because for their business early days, they need this kind of like skill set. So he built up this big network out of which then Alex Kidanov. Amazing. I feel like we're going to have to add like a... Yeah, like a social graph connecting everyone with little labels. If anyone listening to this podcast wants to do it, I'm sure that we can fund it for the DAO. 
by the way, I'm creating a DAO for the podcast and getting from them for the marketing DAO. Thank you, Community Fund. I, I find this fascinating. If there's anyone listening, I'm sure in the future, this will go into history books. I think you've seen some of, they've written a couple of books now from like the early days, Ethereum, and it's just the beginning yeah. of a new era and a revolution. Just before we move on to that, you know, why this is a new stage in technology, I'm just really curious if you know how we've, how we're doing recruitment now. So we're able to identify some hot spots for top talent that were really well suited for this industry. And I'm wondering now that the ecosystem is growing, perhaps the needs have also shifted and are we still able to target and poach developers? Should we have an ongoing presence at these international competitions? Should we be sponsoring? Should we, yeah. Do, do you know much on that side? No. Yeah, some people think, I know some people from like early in your team think that we need to poach from this kind of community, from competitive programming. Then you have like other people who think like it's more about web developer mindset. There's, there's something to be said about this mindset that Paras, like one of the NFT marketplaces on Nier have, which is basically building something very iteratively. So let's just launch, let's just get early users. Like when Paras launched on Nier, there was no NFT standards. And they also didn't have Rust skill set. They're just like, all right, like we're still gonna launch. <laughs> and then a year later, once they were had enough volume to be like, okay, maybe we need something more secure. They rewrote it in Rust. Same standard was adopt, adopt, adopted. They had to make a lot of changes. And I think this kind of mindset really is not a big part of any Web3 ecosystem for some reason. I think the engineering mindset is kind of like opposite. It's like, hey, I'm dealing with money. It's very, I need to build something very secure, very robust before launch. And so I think. Yeah, it depends. Depends on who you ask. Some people will be like, we need more of this people. Then you have people who are like, opposites of that. Yeah, I think generally speaking, we need more diversity. We need more fresh ideas. I think like bringing younger people, generally speaking, is like a really good idea. I think once we actually, early days of near we did high school hackathon. Plus, it doesn't really apply well in a sense that there are not that many schools like this that we saw here in like Silicon Valley, but there was a school where like this kids of 16 year olds that were doing this AI model on blockchain, but they also like in their free time work in a restaurant to understand how real world is. So like there are people like that. And I, th I think we need all kinds of people. I think business talent is like very much missing in, in crypto as well. I feel like it's very too skewed on an engineering yeah, 100%, side. So. I agree. And I guess that, that's why I asked because I feel like we're probably both coming in on that like business side, sales, everything that is not like pure tech. But I also acknowledge that there's levels of abstraction. So for instance, if we're working on a project and we identify some of the shortcomings of things that still have to be built, then the question is who's working on this and how many people are out there able to work on this? Like recently, I've been able to learn more about mistake wars and going from phase zero to phase one decentralization and how the shards are going to split and the validators. So I think it's like very specific. And maybe we don't need a hundred thousand people doing that, but it's certainly not something that everyone can do. That may be different from a, an everyday DAP, which I agree we should be recruiting much more broadly. And it's really good that we're actually expanding the languages. So now there's JavaScript support, so we can get from a d completely different talent pool. Yeah. And I do recall the early days yeah. for us because on his story, I enabled the, I think it was a near learn club have a little bot for telegram that mm -hmm. notifies you every time you do a transaction and i wake up one morning and i was like holy shit i've been hacked i had a bunch of transactions triggered like through my account 
And I went in line and it was just Paras migrating to like the new NEP standard and the new contract. So it was all the NFTs just being reminted and stuff. But it was a scare. It was a close call. Yeah, that, that, that was cool. And yeah, again, we need more mindset like this. Another thing for innovation, I think generally speaking, like the way innovation works, I don't know how to really approach recruiting in order to change this for the better, but basically I feel like when people join Web3 industries, they tend to replicate what was already successful, meaning that people see that there is like lending protocol, let's build it on here. There's like an NFT marketplace, let's build another one. Let's build, I don't know, like Paraskiller or something. I heard it quite a bit in the last couple of months. But in reality, like Nier itself was built for different kinds of use cases. It's a very different piece of technology from Ethereum. And I think for Ethereum, the same. It took six years of many hackathons. I give a lot of credit to Is Global, to the organization that does hackathons globally in the world, at least before COVID. They were moving at a really crazy pace, one hackathon per major city per month. And with hundreds of people for like bigger, bigger ones, like Denver and New York and a couple other ones. And through this experience, they had thousands, couple thousands of projects, couple dozen use cases, 95% of the stuff like didn't work to then arrive to the place where, okay, high value, low volume transaction work, maybe like lending actually fits well on Ethereum and this and that work on Ethereum. And so I think that's a process of many years of experimentation. And so similarly for Nier, we need to go through the same kind of like years of experimentation, what it requires is this mindset on behalf of people, new people joining the space to try something new, entirely new use case. Let's build something that's, I don't know, like two apps talking to each other and information flow. And then that's interesting or, or something like this, or something that's not something that people tried before. I really like the framework that Nate from Mintbase has. He says the three stages of blockchain evolution. Stage one would be Bitcoin and all its clones. So you've got Dogecoin, Litecoin, etc. Then you've got stage two, which is an EVM model, Ethereum and all its clones, Binance, Smart Chain, Avalanche, C Chain, Aurora. He's actually not a very big fan of Aurora. Awkward. <laughs> and then you've got the third stage, which is a Wasm based. That would be a Solana, Near, Polkadot, Cosmos. And yeah, he's very adamant of when you take a step forward never take a step back, but we do have the challenge of just like the legacy or I guess in due time, we may call it the yep. baggage of the EVM world. And the truth is, if you read the original smart contract, I guess, manifesto paper by Nick Zabo, he has a really simple, crystal clear example of a vending machine. Like this is a smart contract. There's stuff inside the machine. There is a price for it. If you put the right amount of money and you select which one you want, the machine gives you the thing. No money goes in, no thing comes out. And it was a simple enough logic and so mechanical that everyone can understand and grasp. Now we're really dealing with much more complex relationships. And I think this may be a really good segue into not only the founding of Nier, but the why Nier is founded in the first place and the fight for the open web. There are principles in technology. I don't know if this would be called like philosophical technology. Technologists and the cypherpunks, they've been fighting for this for a long time. And I do think it's really important. And I loved all the material you shared with me because most people would see the normal world versus technology. But the reality is within technology, there's so many different streams and currents and tendencies. So yeah, maybe I'll let you explain your paper 
on Richard Stallman and the evolution of software and why open is best and where we're at now? So for Richard Stallman, what was interesting is that he, well, funny enough, so he was idealist and idealist, not necessarily like win, but they might win in the long run. So like open source today is a really big part of like software industry at the time in eighties and nineties, he was really pushing for this idea of building something that's easy for other developers to look at, easy to modify. He has this four, I believe four different freedoms associated with software. And so he was really adamant for it. At the time it was like Microsoft getting started and Microsoft was becoming really big. And I was like very antithetical to this. So like free software movement that Stallman started was opposite of what Microsoft was trying to achieve at the time. And so the kind of the state of the world we have today is majority of the data is sitting on couple corporate servers. And I think that piece actually ended up being more important. The data is more important than software itself. So companies like Facebook, they release open source software from time to time. Like Cassandra is one example, one of the databases that was like open source or like many different other pieces of software, like for ML, both Google and Facebook has open source stuff. But what ends up happening is that it's not so much that open source itself rules but the distribution coming from the data, who controls the data ends up being kind of like what's important in the world of like web services, essentially. And so what we saw in the last like 20 years, we saw technology for, first of all, taking over a lot of industries, but also within that we had a couple companies like actually taking all of the, taking all of the value from the table, right? And so today we have the world dominated by Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Apple, and pretty much there is, yeah, there is like oligopoly. Be better stop naming them because yeah, they're all going to come out to you. <laughs> you don't have want to make too many enemies. And at some point actually Nier was like fairly anti one of those companies in its thesis, but one of the early people. People have been listening closely. They might know which one, a former employer, maybe not. They can cut this bit out. And so we were told to tone it down by one of the early investors. Don't really publish it. But anyway, I think early, Nier's early ethos was very much centered in also geography where it was started, like Silicon Valley. And so there were certain companies here that actually, yeah, we were thinking like, how do we, how, how can we do better? And so the idea of an open web, sorry, it's tricky in the sense that it means very different for different people. If you ask open web, what it means for me, I would say very different thing from Eugene the Dream or from Alex Kidanov and other people who were like prominent early days in terms of like open web. Um, the way kind of I think about it, open web is not only software is open source, but also the data, the execution part is important, like open state side of it. So like execution of software is open and we see it in Ethereum with the um, composability. So people can build insurance application, but take advantage of the fact that Uniswap is running. And so basically you get superpowers as individual developer, right? In addition to you actually meet financial markets a lot more effectively with blockchain. That's powerful. Some of this blockchain was able to solve. What's not still happening yet is that we're still living in this world dominated by those companies and pretty much like World Garden in the internet of today is very different from early days of the internet because I at least remember it like late nineties, early two thousands internet was a lot more diverse in nature. So I, in my mind, open web is the place where you have like millions of different applications, for example, there's app just for niche audience, like who cares about architecture in San Francisco or something. 
and there are maybe 10,000 people. It would be like a historical app. One dollar. Like a window in time when we used to build things in San Francisco. <laughs> All right, exactly. <laughs> that's funny, but yeah, San Francisco, unfortunately, doesn't build much lately. That's it is what it is, right? As well. That's a really good overview. I actually really liked the article that you sent me, if anything, for that historical piece. It being written in 2019 says a lot because obviously it's easier to look back at things and it starts falling in place but it is much harder to go back to first principles and be really critical about the state of things identifying what's wrong always comes first and then is the challenge to try to see what comes later so in the article that you shared with me richard stallman and the future of software innovation which I'll be adding to the show notes. People, please read the show notes. I spend so much time on them. Published on Medium and Hackernoon. You yep. basically mm -hmm. have the full overview. I feel like I could give this to a total beginner and they could really grasp like where we're at now. So the first thing that I really liked is the shift in barriers of access when it comes to technology. So in the not so distant past, the barriers of access were actually hardware. Do you have a computer where you can code? Do you have internet connections? Do you have, can you be plugged into the matrix? But then there was a really subtle shift to the barrier of access actually being distribution. And that is where I feel where the switcheroo comes in, as giants would say. They switched the goalpost. They switched the, I guess, the metrics that we use. And now we're making software free, but it doesn't matter what, it's no longer about the software. And this is where I think we really need to double down because I love that you say that if you ask different core near community members and contributors, they could all give you a different concept for what open web means. I think that may be coming through in say some of the town halls because the line is always there. The vision for near is a future where people are in control of their data. It sounds a bit bland. What does it mean? Like maybe everyone is too busy building and not many people are going back to these first principles. And I really liked, I guess, the slightly more technical approach of describing what does data mean in this context? Because at least personally, I feel like when we think of data, we can, I guess we know it's valuable. We can see how it's valuable, but we tend to think about it in the ways that it is valuable, say for Facebook. They own a lot of it and they can use it in viable ways for them. But we very rarely think of ways in which they are locking out other people and in all the value that we're not unlocking or that we're essentially destroying by them having pure access to it. And yeah, that concept of the, what's it called? The shared state or the execution state. I liked it because I felt like I was learning and becoming more technical. I've seen this word state on Ethereum and near. That makes so much sense. You can have the open source code, but if you don't have any inputs for the code to run, it's useless. So you can start to see how the blockchain being that shared state is amazing. And maybe this could be a really good way to give credit where credit is due and introduce the concept of decentralization as Vitalik described it back in 2017. I know that you include him as a reference on your article, and I think it's still very timely. Do you want to run us through that? So Vitalik, when he was thinking about decentralization, he mentioned that basically it's a cent centralized from the logical perspective, but decentralized architecturally and politically. And so what he means by this is that the system behaves like one computer 
So it's centralized from that standpoint, but it is decentralized in the sense that nodes are run everywhere and anybody can run one. And also politically it's decentralized from the perspective that many people actually control those computers that then manifest itself to be like one computer, it behaves like one computer. So I think that's uh, it's fascinating it's because if you apply that structure, it's just such a simple concept, but also so hard to apply. If we were to apply that to some of the DAOs that we have now on near. You realize that the DAOs failed the test of decentralization. So the architectural decentralization would be the code okay. itself. Say AstroDAO. Okay, that one's there. Tick. No one can take AstroDAO down. The political decentralization, how many individuals or organizations are running the DAO. Things start to get a little bit dubious. The DAO could potentially eventually die. And it doesn't even have to be malicious. Like sometimes you just lose the quorum to pass proposals or some factions take over the DAO, like what? there's challenges there. The real challenge that we have now is the logical decentralization. So the interface and the data for the decisions to be made, that is not available to anyone else. Any DAO making decisions, we see how they vote on chain, but we don't really know what leads to that decision-making. We are in the early days of attempting to improve that. So for instance, for the marketing DAO and in theory, for the creatives DAO, we encourage and require participation of the governance forum and near, and then we add the link referring to that. But I feel like there's still just a lot of data. Like every time I'm assessing a proposal for the marketing DAO, I have to go on a scavenger hunt, the Twitters and the links, and the blog posts, and there's just a lot of data points to try to come up with a decision. So yeah, it's really interesting that from the early days, Vitalik acknowledged that a network where there's a lot of computers, so that if one goes down, the network survives, where these computers are controlled by a lot of different people. So even if they, whatever happens, they'll st they, there will always be some computers in line, but where the data is shared, it's kind of genius. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. And I feel like we're still very early days, obviously, both for Ethereum and for Nier. So it's, when it comes to governance, like DAOs, uh, I feel like it's such a beginning time. It's, we're just getting started very much. Very quickly getting out of my technical depth, but I think that a challenge that Ethereum would have had early days is that that data structure is actually expensive to run on the Ethereum model. So a lot of people have become like blockchain haters because it just doesn't make sense to store data as such on the blockchain. That's why I'm eternally fascinated on the mm -hmm. new ecosystem and the collaborations with ha we have with our Weave Mintbase. I think we're the first ones to integrate with them. Solana, they're storing all the transactions on our Weave as well. There's a bunch of collaborations with IPFS, Ceramic. Natively, we're building ma Machina. Really keen to see where those storage solutions go and how that improves the data availability. Yeah, and I think we're going to also run into like limits as well. I feel like with Ethereum, we, I think it's natural. So there's infrastructure and there's application side of it. And so you build infrastructure, then a bunch of people build on top of it, then they run into limitations. And so for Nier, I guess what I'm trying to say, and same for storage solutions too, there'll be a lot more built on those. And then we will then define what are the limits. We'll figure out, okay, what actually goes on chain versus what is okay to store off chain and they'll be kind of like somewhat dictated by limitations. Yeah, because the easiest example right now of that interaction on chain would be a lending platform like BorrowCash and a decentralized exchange like Ref. And if you want to make it a bit more complex, you may even add a liquid staking provider like Metapool. 
if a position becomes under collateralized on borrow cash, they would trigger a transaction on ref. So you have the two protocols talking to each other and there must be an oracle somewhere reporting on the price. And yeah, it's just really cool to enable that because in the past, and this goes to the aggregation theory by Ben Thompson, excellent article, check out the show notes. There is a tendency for companies to just consolidate in verticals. So normally you have the concept of expanding horizontally. So you basically start acquiring all your competitors and merge or going up or down the stack. So for instance, in this example, if borrow cash, we're not able to communicate with ref and being able to automatically with one contract call, execute that side of the transaction, borrow cash would inevitably have to create its own DEX and Ref would inevitably have to create its own lending platform and both would inevitably have to create their own liquid staking providers. But now you've got Metapool doing its thing, Ref doing its thing, Borrow doing its thing. You've got three engines of innovation and they can communicate automatically with the right triggers. So it's really cool. And I think that's what Stalman was getting to around the pace of innovation with open source. Make sure that as many developers as possible have access to the code but not in the lazy way that some scumbags in crypto do it, that they just copy paste and have two, three, four, 15 versions of the same thing. The idea is to build on top, <laughs> to always push the boundaries, to save you two, three, four years of learning, digest the code, understand it, and then always ask what's next, what's next. If you see something that is not optimal, pull request on GitHub and contribute. That's how you get hired, by the way, I've been told. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Amazing. I think that we've covered the origins of Near and the concept of the open web. I'd like to start going into the more recent past. I know that you were in the funding team for Near early days, and then you moved on to Human Guild. Would you be able to tell us in a few sentences what the Human Guild is and what it stands for? So what it stands for is we want for every creator to have an opportunity to bring their creations to the world get rewarded for it as well. In practice, what we do is we're community founders. So we work with a lot of founders building natively on Nier and trying to actually help each other through founder solving founders model. So I, I've started when I was in Nier Incubator Accelerator, Open Web Collective, which is a different model. It's more, there's a centralized kind of source of truth. There's a program and people go like work through it. And the other model, this other approach is essentially founders helping founders. In theory, it scales better, but it's also harder in the sense that you want to get potentially competitive solutions, let's say it's a bunch of games, to start sharing information. And it normally doesn't work as well in, in incubators and accelerators. The kind of culture we're trying to adopt is we're telling people actually early days of Nier, kind of st stories of what happened there, where Nier had actually YouTube series called Whiteboard Series. And that was at least on the R&D side of it before people launched. It's very collaborative. So like maybe today Nier doesn't talk all of the time with like Solana and like Polkarot, but back then it was actually very important to share some of the ideas and Nier borrowed some of the ideas, I believe for data availability from Polkarot and Ethereum 2 borrowed some ideas from Nier. So there was a lot of what changed? cross collaboration. Like, is it the competitive aspect that people just pulled away naturally, that we just get busy once we launched and we haven't had the time to do it? Is there any reason why we're not doing more of those? Because I find those early videos, even if they're two, three years old, they're extremely informative and I'll add them to the show notes again. I know that we've referenced them many times in previous 
episodes, but I'm sure that people haven't seen them yet. So we'll keep chucking them in there. Can we get more of those going? We can actually. There are like maybe different formats that could be done. For example, like I, at some point I started feeling, I actually like scheduled majority of them. So I've been like pretty actively involved early days in, in the, in that content. But at some point I felt like also it was like a bit saturating in the sense that it was a information just for the protocol teams, not for application builders as much. Maybe not all application builders need to know how near versus Solana work. Some of them do, of course, in practice, not many of them know, but I think the community of protocol teams, protocol builders actually like relatively small. It's a couple hundred people, I think in blockchain. So essentially teams building this like L1, L2 infrastructure versus when it comes to application builders, I think there is not enough content that exists for those. And so there's probably plenty of room there to inspire people in terms of what are I'm going to teach you lies. <laughs> I have an idea. And I know that the regional hubs have a very strong focus on product. I talk a lot with Claudio and I know that a big component of the Latam hub is going to be like product labs so that not only are we training people in collaboration with the education team, but we want to make sure that people that have ideas actually get to build and get that synergy going. So I had an idea for, I guess, like an extra category on my YouTube channel. It would make sense to keep building on, on the same audience that I've through sweat and tears. It's over 1400 now. So the current channel, it's called Alpha Leaks with AVB. And normally I just share videos about new projects and features that I think are getting us closer to a billion people, very much focused on like the adoption side and how users can get value out of it. So I was thinking about creating a new series called Alpha Builds with AVB. And the idea would be to get a panel of experienced builders and programmers to say, Matlock, you're Eugene, yourself. And then every week we can prompt people to send in ideas or products. And they could even be rebuilds of say other projects from other protocols. And we could run through how could it look on near both leveraging the user experience. So for instance, I think that the allowance mechanism where you can just perform transactions within the application that have been pre-approved and you don't have to approve each, that would be massive for a lot of these applications, but also maybe understand where different components of the tech stack fall in place. And I think that would be really useful for app builders. So for instance, right now I'm a very strong advocate of the wallet connector. There's a lot of really cool wallets launching on Near. I'm seeing it through Ref, I'm seeing, seeing it through Metapool. Neither one of us have the wallet connector yet, but we're looking at integrating it soon. And these wallets are integrating. So I think that the more applications that have the wallet connector, it automatically opens that world. Another example would be some of the early days stuff that I saw, maybe it was Vadim, maybe it was Matt sharing like the social authentication. I think that is insanely cool. And I don't know how many applications mm -hmm. are using it. I know that there's a GitHub repo out there, but the teams that made it possible and pushed it out, they're just so busy that I really do think that it now falls on us as community builders and content creators to put it in front of people. Something that is also super cool and it's yeah. getting a bit more traction, more adoption. It's like the near drop model. It could be the link drop. Exactly. That's actually interesting. I was talking yesterday to one of the co-founders of link drop. Essentially what was interesting there is it kind of like in this vein, but it's for me, it was also less in feature versus product because what happened with link drop and near drop is that 
it's notoriously very hard for Ethereum teams to go and join, become like multi-chain in their case. It was hard for them to refocus on other chains. And so near somebody on near build this feature, near drop. And so in theory, it's this amazing thing. It's so good for adoption in theory, like we have 650 applications all built on near today, like 90% of them should be using this. It's a no brainer in terms of, in terms of the adoption impact, the, this particular tool itself. But in practice, I actually don't see almost anyone using it. And so it's interesting. It tells you like a little bit about feature versus product. What I mean by this is that there is a piece that was built and it's out there and maybe some people know about it, but it's out there. Maybe it's maintained, maybe it's not versus there's a team behind it and actually pushing it and like really trying to get adoption going for this particular tool. And so I was just thinking like how yesterday, how big of a missed opportunity it is. Like we have it, it's out there and yet people don't use it. And another example of what's missing, I agree that there are plenty of things that are missing and we can like through conversations like and brainstorms, discover content creation, discover those like in, in our world to come back to gaming, like NFT bridge is like really big need across, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 projects. And yet it's not quite a priority today. So I, I just actually found, so I found a team in New York last week who will be building it. So. We'll see how long we'll take, but it, it's got one of those. It's like, really need this one, but uh, how For do people are listening that may not be familiar with Link Drop, I'll add the link on the show notes. And in a sentence or two, it's this really cool tool where you can basically pre-load or pre-pay transactions for users. And then either through an actual link that they click on, so you can send on an email or on a form, or a QR code that they scan, it prompts them to do the action that has already been prepaid. So for instance, let's say that you're going to a meetup in San Francisco and you've got these QR codes where people can claim a proof of attendance. If they have never in their life used near, you as the organizer of the meetup can prepay their wallet creation so that in one single user flow, the user can scan, creates a wallet, that has been prepaid and redeems the NFT. So in an experience that you build, and we encourage people to get as creative as possible, we've seen everything from technical events to actual raves in Goa and Tulum. <laughs> it's a really good way to onboard people. And I feel like once the whole transaction is done, people try to reverse engineer like, do I have a wallet now? Am I a blockchain user? Is this an NFT? It's so much more smooth than everything else out there that hopefully it is the beginning for people to ask like, how can I integrate this technology in my product? If I remove all the cryptography and the friction and the approval and the cost, how could it be leveraged? I was going to ask, have you identified any potential barriers or what would be required for that team to, I guess, be what you call it more of a product than less of a feature? Is there any, I guess specifically, is there anything on our side? Is it like maybe a grant from near and let's just call that core infrastructure. Is it a f maybe paid features from the user yeah. side? Maybe actually something like grants could work, especially in this market. And I personally think that market conditions will persist for a while. We can also talk about it later, but I feel like value of money at this point in time, capital is like much higher versus where it was like a month ago. So maybe it will take a grant. Actually, yesterday I was talking to the other co-founder of this project. He's building something else now. He's building an NFT wallet. So my, I was slowly getting to the idea of him actually adding near as one of the chains. Is that the co-founder of Link? Forgive him a shout out. Some people can follow him. Sounds like a prolific builder adding value. 
That's right. That's right. It's Artyom Ignatyev. Yeah, he's one of the nice. founders well, there. Yesterday I was talking to a wild team as well. Meteor from the Tinker Union project. Pretty cool. I really like their user flow. It's just very simple. It looks like they've put a lot of thought into, you know, if I were a user for the first time. And it's not like contextual information. It just tells you in a really simple way what's going to happen next and what you're doing and what does it mean. And I was talking to them. They're also looking at raising money. And I proposed something that you would probably be familiar with because we're doing something similar for the Human Guild. As you know, we've got Meta Yield, which is a cool way to, for some projects to fundraise money. So the way that it works for listeners, users deposit as senior and their rewards, their senior gets locked for a period of time, usually 12 months, and their rewards received from the protocol for, for the staking rewards go to the project. So it's a really cool way for people to support new projects and I guess de-risk the venture in the sense that you keep your original near and it's only the staking rewards that go to it. Where it gets really interesting is that there are relatively large players that may be staking with us. The first benefit that they get is they support a lot of validators. And I've been going through the statistics recently for stake wars. It's actually amazing to see like the bottom 40 validators most of them, Metapool is pretty important in, in, in their staking percentage-wise and keeping their seed price. So there's a strong incentive for larger operators, could be VCs, could be foundations, to stake through liquid staking. But what I was thinking was, at the moment we have proximity using as senior to support DeFi projects. Soon we're going to be bringing Human Guild to support games. Correct me if I'm wrong, we can take that out if you don't want to. <laughs> and I was thinking, we yeah. should really strive to create a category for core infrastructure. We could have wallets there, we could have link drops. Through Stake Wars, the foundation is going to be putting a chunk of near into Metapool anyway. So I think it could be a good opportunity to deploy that. And I love it because I feel like it further decentralizes the network because they don't need any more near. Yep. And if they're going to stake to keep it secure, it's amazing that they could actually give their rewards to your teams building, especially core infrastructure. That's where the tragedy of the commons kicks in. These are the projects that everyone can use, but no one pays for. So who's building them? That's right. I agree, actually. Tragedy of the commons is a real thing, obviously, in open source too. For decades, I think the person who is doing a really good job on this front is in Ethereum ecosystem, Kevin Awoki, who is uh, doing Gitcoin. He actually published a couple of books about it, being greenfield, this whole idea of public goods being something that people actually pay for and focus on, like public infrastructure. And for Nier, also what's interesting is that the way I look at the ecosystem, why I'm excited about MetaYield is, and we need more initiatives similar nature, is that we actually need to also decentralize the funding side of it. The, Two big centralizing points we have today in ecosystem, and it will change over the years, is Pagoda and Neuro Foundation. And so for Pagoda, I think they're building a lot of good dev tooling, but in the end of the day, I would personally be a lot happier if startups, like actually in every niche, product niche, outcompete Pagoda across everything that they're building on top of the blockchain itself in terms of dev tooling. And then similarly for Foundation, this is almost not the only, but the, the biggest by far source of funding today in ecosystem. And I think if we want to have Ethereum level of success, we want to have more different ways to engage different kinds of capital in terms of players. And it could be Meta Yield, could be something like Kickstarter, could be something like public goods, like Gitcoin initiative could be maybe like 
just getting angels involved to begin with, that's something that we need to get better at. So I feel like those pieces are like very important, both the funding side and the kind of startups doing better on them. It's definitely worth adding for context that the funding structure has been iterated and evolving over time. Only last week, there's a new post from the CEO, Marik, on the evolution of NIR, there's been some restructuring at the foundation level, some rethinking and improving on the way that funding flows. So for listeners as a foundation, they would do grants, usually for larger amounts or established teams. Then the verticals like proximity, they do DeFi, human guild, they do humans, <laughs> they do mostly gaming. And there's the community verticals at the moment marketing DAO and creatives DAO. I know there's an initiative to create a dev fund so that there can be more community funding that is more technical. But yeah, it's challenging because when you make a proposal, you obviously have to outline what is the desired outcome and how you're going to get there. The problem is that every proposal has challenges. Like it's not all been worked out and circumstances change. So it's like, well, how do I make the proposal in a way that it can be approved so we can get this going, but at the same time, acknowledge that it could change. And yeah, like I studied law. So for me, it's perfectly normal to have a document that goes back and forth 14 times, the exception of the exception. But for some people, it's really weird to have a proposal where there's, okay, here, so here's a plan. And here is the plan when this plan may not work and the contingency, yeah, it's interesting. I know that the foundation is bringing in a lot more like banker professionals and auditors, and I guess they're putting in some structure for funding that may not be very web three because <laughs> in the past, it's just been an absolute shit show. But yeah, I really do hope that we get to keep improving on that. I do love the Gitcoin model and I'd love to get a shout out to James Wall. He He's moved on to another ecosystem now, but he's been a very strong advocate of that public goods funding. He actually listed several of the near challenges on Gitcoin. I'd actually like to revisit what the near presence is on Gitcoin now, and we should definitely reconnect with them or build our own. I think you were pushing for us to build something similar. Yeah, there are things being incubated on that front. Somebody else was actually pushing even harder for that. Yep. And then when it comes to actual Gitcoin, you know, Nier have done a couple of hackathons with them. I believe, yeah, Gitcoin is also like partnering with quite a bit of chains, different ecosystems now that they're, they used to be incubated, I believe. And now they're more like independent entity that needs to figure out its own business model and get more customers and that kind of stuff. And so I think they're actually like a lot more open towards like working with other ecosystems. Let's see, should we go back to Gate? No, or yes. Should we discuss something? Thanks. See, that's why I shared the document with you because I know that you're more structured. No. So yes, going back to the human guild, I, before I let you mm. talk about the games in the pipeline, there were two things that I really liked from the website. The first one was the overall aim or objective, which you've already stated, but it's worth mentioning again. We want every human to be rewarded for bringing their creations to the world. That was really inspiring because I think that it goes to the subjective element of the potential within the individual and encouraging people to really be unique and to maximize what only them can do. There's no need to be copy pasting other people. And that's where I feel that when you ask people, what problem are you trying to solve? They really should look deep, both inwards and around them. And have a response. 
the byproduct yeah. may be that you make money out of it. That's fine. But the problem that you're trying to solve shouldn't just be your bank account because that's what you probably get from like forking an NFT project or another project. So I think that focus on the individual is amazing yep. and acknowledging that historically, maybe people were deterred from looking deep inwards and outwards because it was just harder to do. So this enabling vehicle, I feel like it's very inspiring. Obviously, I am extremely grateful because we have been recipient of the Human Guild grant through Misfits and most recently, Oli also has a new, very exciting secret project that is also being enabled by Human Guild. Yeah, I can, I can see the effects out there in the world. Very soon, we'll be going into the steamy hot pipeline of, last time I heard, 59 games. But before we jump into that one, the second line that I really loved and will probably make it the opening of the episode was an open invitation. Are you tired of waiting to make something happen? Come build with us. <laughs> So I, I love that builder ethos and yeah, just encouraging everyone to join the community and learn from each other. And if it's not there, someone has to build it. So it may as well be you. That's right. Yeah. I think in general, that's a big kind of holy grail of Web3 is to get to a place where people building something that's unique to them, that brings value to other people. That's the essence of sustainable economy as opposed to Ponzi is to build something value added to it, but then also importantly getting paid for it. And so I think what we saw in the last 10 years is that you have companies like Heroes in Silicon Valley, like Roblox, and then you have Minecraft who really unleashed creativity in the last 10 years. They brought so many people into this creative pursuits, but the economy side of it is not great. It's like this large corporations. One of them is owned by Microsoft, Minecraft is, and then another one is a big public company now, and they like really not going to change anything they do. And if you look at kind of economics of it, I think Roblox takes 83% or something like this with everything set and done from the creators. And I think Web3 is this promise that what if we take this creative spark and encourage this creativity the same way how this guys did in the last 10 years, but actually get creators to get paid. And that also, that's for digital creators, but also it applies to artists, musicians, like all kinds of creators out there where the internet kind of like happened, the internet exists for a couple of decades, and yet there's only one particular creator who gets paid really well, and that's software engineer. And like the, the market rewarded one particular creator in a sense. And then you have the rest who like before Web3 kind of like just had Instagram to get followers to then monetize it somewhere else somehow is the kind of musicians do merch mostly as their like main thing. Artists sell through galleries, comic artists go to Comic-Con in San Diego and has to convince this one guy that like their comic is worth it to be put in this distribution. That's what actually literally somebody from New York system did you. He went for 15 years to Comic-Con to convince this one guy. And I think Web3 is a promise that we don't need this. Like you can, the, the market is there. You can just put your stuff there. But also you need to build your own brand. You need, you need to build your audience. It's only like maybe 1% of creators still get it. But you also, it's not just about creation. You need to build the distribution side of it. The kind of this proverbial middleman had not only capital, but also distribution. And so now the challenging thing is like, now, like, how do we build distribution? Are we building it on our own or creating like bands of people, kind of musicians that, in Portland together. Work that is such a good point because it is very easy to get excited about the new world and ignore the fact that in the old world, these middlemen, they do create some value. They do some work that the artist yeah. doesn't do. I feel what the issue is, 
the distribution of the value is completely out of whack. So the first thing would be technically the artist yeah. can do the distribution and the brand building. And in some cases they actually do most of the work, but the, in, in theory, that's what the middleman does. But most of the payment for both the creation of the content and the branding and distribution goes to the middleman. So I do feel like this is an exciting time to be able to rebalance those forces. But the savage truth is it does place a big burden on the creators to start doing all these things that they have traditionally not done. And while some content creators are extremely business savvy and they're all billionaires now like Kanye West and Rihanna, some are just not very good at it. <laughs> some are much more happier and right. they just thrive in like the creative abstract world. Like it's their subjective output that people enjoy. It could use some assistance. So I feel like there's a lot of opportunity there for collaboration among artists and maybe finding new ways to yeah, match skills, etc. I think the core of the distribution element, and I always like coming up with weird parallels, is Say that you wanted to start an online shop, but you had to convince the internet <laughs> to list your website or that you had to convince the post company to carry your packages. Like that would be ridiculous, right? Can you imagine how many people would be missing out on starting an online business if there was this random middleman that could just refuse to literally distribute the work? So I feel like this is a game changer. It definitely has been for the last 20 years. The stories that we're seeing now from like Instagram and, and mostly TikTok and any social media, people going direct to the audience and being able to grow. It's amazing. And yeah, I think that Web3 takes it to the next level. But back to gaming. Why game? Because mm -hmm. I, I, I guess, why Human Guild? Because I think it's a very broad name. Some people may think it's like a human trafficking guild. I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> why human guild and yeah, so then when, why gaming is one of the core focus yeah so human in the name there is because we wanted to put a focus on human as a, like in crypto basically there is a lot of focus on money so it's more about like money side of things let's build something like in monetary system our naming has human in it to focus on the this creator one the human who gets to create and then reap the benefits of it as opposed to like money outside of it so it, it was more like in that context when human guild started we were more broad we did not focus just just on gaming and roughly in the summertime of last year it was still very early for the ecosystem we saw on paras that there was roughly like 12 or so attempts by creators to create games. So they didn't have skills. They didn't have like game dev skill, but they're building almost like this, like card game, like trying to be aspiration, like trying to be card game, but not quite card game because I like something was missing, but there was like this interest. And so we saw this organic interest. We wanted to kind of double down on this. And so we started doing some game jumps. And so game jumps is something similar to hackathons where the output unlike any kind of project the output here is a game and so i started researching on independent game developers like in indies and, and how, how they live their world turns out that majority of them in the us live below poverty line so they actually essentially swap the creative freedom for stability they choose freedom over stability and not go to ubisoft or unity or like any other either gaming studio or infrastructure company and just work for themselves. And it's just very hard and lonely place. And they 
work on their creation for many years. And uh, yeah, economic side is just like horrible. They tend to not do generally speaking, but they have this huge community out there. And Game Jams is what kind of like unites those communities. Who did a really good job on this in the Web2 world is this developer from San Francisco. He started the website called each, each.io as an each to create each.io. And so he has like Game Jams just happening nonstop all the time on the website. And uh, we, we started doing a couple of those when we saw this organic interest and, and para, in parts on creating games on Nier, even though the skills kind of like were missing there. And uh, yeah, we, we were able to get a couple of like really interesting independent game developers directly from web two, just into web three through this. And then we started doubling down on this. We started getting organic interest from like smaller studios. Like now it was not just indie game developers, it was smaller studios who were approaching us. I think some of it was like timing related because last year was this X infinity was blowing through the roof and there was all of a sudden a lot of interest in, in, in web three gaming. And so we saw a lot of like studios joining and we started working with a lot of those and kind of one thing led to another, it ended up being kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy, more founders starting coming to us. And people started referring to us as those gaming guys in the year. So ended up being kind of like became more and more niche over time. I think we're not like entirely focused on gaming today. We have like music marketplace, we've incubated, there are some virtual worlds, no code platforms, like all kinds of things. But that's a, ended up being like a pretty big. I was going to ask what the relationship between Human Guild and the Neo Foundation is, as in where does the Human Guild funding comes from? Are you guys for profit, not for profit? What is usually the arrangement with the projects that are incubated? Our relationship is not with a non-profit. We took a grant from Neo Foundation. Yeah, it, it's kind of like just an experience grow, growing non-profit, like thinking about, thinking about the, that side of, do you want to build sustainability model in this? Do you want to build scalability model in this? In our case, we're on very lean, very small organization. Our DAO is like 10 people. At this point, we have a couple of people from community helping us and we're like non-profit essentially. So quite a few times people try to give us different parts of like rewards back to us and we didn't take them. It's kind of like a bit miss, but. We would focus on giving in this case. So that's how it's structured. Yeah. And another piece is we haven't productized anything. So Vlad has a couple projects he's working on. There is Neural Lens, there is Web4 he's building, but it's not a core part of this. It's more like it's his own like passion projects and he wants to pursue them, but in a very like his own timeline. I love that term, passion projects. That's nice. I'm not, I am a lawyer in Australia, but I am not giving out, I'm not in the business of giving out legal advice. I am not an accountant, but I do feel it's interesting that Sometimes there's a misconception from the general public, and I'm not implying that that would be the case here, that not-for-profits can't make money. Usually the not-for-profit model is right. at the distribution of the profits. So the not-for-profits can indeed have sources of revenue. In fact, they're encouraged to be sustainable long-term. It's just that the money stays within the organization. There's no distribution to the owners or the operators in the same way that, what do you call, yeah share royalty distribution would be. The money just stays within the organization to keep being utilized for the specified purpose. So in this case, I'm assuming Human Guild would be to grow their near ecosystem in a certain number of ways. And any money that goes back into the organization can be repurposed for that. I don't want to put you on the spot, but <laughs> there was a tweet. I don't even remember whose tweet it was. May have been Pando from the Century City. I don't know. And I saw it live. So I caught you before you deleted your reply. I think your reply was, yes, I'd love to debate AVB on for-profit versus non-for-profit models. And I was like, yeah, that'd be a great, a great debate. Mm -hmm. And then the tweet was gone. So 
We won't have to go into it now, but yeah, I just want to highlight that if the human guild can make some moolah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, an interesting thing here is that also the other side of it is that if you think about incentives, I feel like for-profit model in a way puts you in, a, for example, like when I think about for-profit, I think about startups, maybe it's because I'm like biased living here in Silicon Valley, but in startup world, you pushed against the wall. And if you don't have funding coming through, which early days, it's sort of the funding, but funding goes away in, in periods like this, you need to become extremely resourceful, right? You need to figure out how to still make money, how to get users in a cheap way, kind of like back, backed against the wall. You have people relying on you if you have like bigger team and so hopefully there are some teams that will be able to figure out the way out of it and figure it out basically becomes this necessity is a mother of invention in a way non-profits in a way can be also very different in terms of how efficient call it they are because non-profits can receive funding and then they make decisions on like how to distribute this funding the example of non-profit comes like some like local government we have in san francisco it has like 13 also doing to give away. Crazy. Uh, so their incentives are very, very different. Yeah. And so the question is like, where this money goes and like, how, like who works there and how do they spend their day? It's probably very different from. I think you'd be surprised that most of the money goes to the people that work there. But anyway, <laughs> no, the, I, I think I'm 100% right. correct. And <laughs> over time, you realize that profit or not for profit, the most valuable thing is focus. <laughs> And then the second most valuable thing is cash. If yeah. you don't have cash, you're in a very bad place because it's just needed to operate. But if you don't have focus, then you're not operating essentially. So I do agree that every organization and every team need to take the measures necessary to be able to focus on the mission at hand. I recall when Elon Musk wanted to take, I think it was Tesla private. And he's like, public markets are a problem because if the stock is down, employees are depressed and they can't focus. And if the stock is up, everyone thinks they're rich and they can't focus. So it doesn't help us. We're not really worried about the price of the stock. We're worried on building the cars and pushing the boundaries of technology. By the way, all of Tesla technology is open source. And every time that he's asked about competitors, he's like, I don't care. This is the point. We want to push the entire industry to run like Tesla. So it's a fascinating perspective. I feel like there's definitely a lot of parallel sale with near and the foundation we don't talk about price it's not a priority and it should not be even if people's personal wealth may be tied to it we have a mission at hand and i was only mentioning it because i've come across some not-for-profits that they are actually deterred from going into a relationship if there's any source of revenue in it for them so i guess that would be the exception of you don't want your organization to run on a purely profit-seeking model but if there is an opportunity, also don't turn it down. Like it's not illegal, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Sasha, I'm going to run in the bathroom again. Embarrassing. But when I come back, I'd love to join, jump into the game specifically. Tell me which ones are you most excited about? What are the traits of good teams and game developers for people that are interesting? Where can they go and learn the skills? Do you have any more game jams coming up? <laughs> that and much more in one and a half minutes. Cool. Sounds good. And we're back. So what's the pie point sitting at the moment? Still 59? It's a bit It's a bit bigger. I think overall we gave 100 or so grants. Games, yeah, the games are like 50, 50, 60 of them. Majority of them still in development. Uh, 
does take time for people to launch. Gaming to mainnet has to do with complexities of design economy, the legal side of it, the sheer complexities related to launching the game itself. I feel like launching the game on its own is very challenging. So I feel like we have a couple teams who iterate very quickly and launch games like very quickly in this like vibe of early like mobile games. They're like mobile teams who like would just like launch game every three months and kind of see what sticks and kind of continuous moves on to next games. Like in our case, we have pixel dabs. Like Daniel and his friends who built many different projects at this point. There's Pixel Pets, there's Crypto Hero, there is Change in Tactics, there is Jitter building. That that model also has its own pros and cons because it's very hard for them to improve the existing game because they're like already running the next game. But they've been like really amazing at launching quickly. I think our bias is to really get people to launch quickly, but in, in practice it ends up being like fairly complex with the games, especially when they inter interact with open economy, building sustainable economy, generally speaking, is not something people have done yet in Web3 gaming. I don't think anybody would say that X was an example of sustainable economy. So there, there are challenges on that front. We have 90% or so of those games are still in pipeline, still in development, and the launches also take time. Yeah. And delays happen. Like with Nier itself, we were, when we were starting in August of 2018, our plan was to launch World Startup Series in January of 2019. So there was this idea that next couple months, we're just going to get, may not go. And then once you get into it. Only is it late about, about 12 months? <laughs> yeah, I love it. I get really excited about uh, gaming on Nier because I feel like games are that one thing that gets the next billion users. The challenge that blockchain has had up until now is that it is very dependent on price and speculation. So during the bear markets, users go no. away because they're deep in the red or there's nothing to speculate on. And then during the bull markets, there's a lot of like dodgy things going on, yeah. which may actually damage the reputation of the industry. So it's hard for a sustainable ecosystem to develop in those conditions. I like that. Near never really had a super aggressive pump, so we didn't get to speculate that much, like leverage trading and all those things. The NFT space also was much yep. smaller. And I feel like there were some rugs, but a lot of the teams are actually pretty cool to have the community, some are building. And yeah, I think that gaming is that one thing where it's a sweet spot. Users can have fun. They can come back day after day. They don't need to know. That near is the underlying tech stack that powers it. They don't have to care what the price is. And it really pushes for hopefully more development, more adoption, like more transactions going through. We can see how the network behaves. So I, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, likewise, I think I completely agree in the sense that we need to be striving for the use cases that have to do with utility. Some of this like open web use cases, once they are there, I think there'll be a lot more utility focused, less so speculative focused on gaming is an example of that too, is like, I'd like to think of gaming as a kind of how people thought about gaming for the last couple of decades, form of entertainment, same as movies and music. People pay for this to spend time and doing something fun. It's, there's no expectation of getting paid. Play to earn, I think, will be a big part of the games, but the gameplay itself will be even bigger part. Because the main challenge here is you can never pay That's people cool. enough where it is worthwhile to play to earn cash. What you have to earn is reputation, status, something rare, some magical item. It may not actually have any value in the real world, but for the people that play the game, that's rare. It's kind of like a medal in the Olympics. The medal itself, it's probably not worth much. And I don't know if they get a prize money. 
but just the fact that you have that one item that no one else has. I also really like the grassroots yeah, approach of going with indie developers, identifying both the source of talent and I guess the problem that they're facing in terms of being able to fund and monetize their creation. It's like the underdogs. I see it like an underground rebellion of indie developers. And it seems like the movement has progressed successfully to the next stage of like small studios. So I guess that my question would be, are there any suggestions on how to reach these indie developers in other regions? So say there's people listening to us from Europe, from Australia, from anywhere in the world. Where can we try to tap into those indie developers over here and let them know that there's this community that can support them? And I guess the same question would apply further up the stack. How do we identify and connect with small studios, present them to the near ecosystem? Are there plans for moving further and further up the chain until we have the big dogs developing on near? Yeah. So when it comes to independent game developers, I would say two big places where they hang out is those game jumps. That's number one. And game jumps, there are a couple of different ways you can do it. You can sponsor game jump that does have a big distribution and be like a web city partner in it. And it's kind of becomes like self-selection. So there's a group of people, maybe like five, 10% of the total amount of participants, whatever it is, who actually gravitate towards this and actually would do something about it. And it also indicates that they're like mild, mildly curious about Web3. And by the way, in gaming, Web3 is a big, there's quite a bit of tension when it comes to Web3 for whatever reason. And so you, then you end up working with those people, right? You like then focus on this 5-10% who participated. Another way to do it is to run your own game jump. Then the challenge there is more like distribution, how you're going to be over time getting those developers to participate. We've done both. I think the important piece across game jumps, generally speaking, is consistency. Similarly to hackathons, like when it comes to is global, for example, they actually know that the only one thing they care about is retention. They know that it takes four different hackathons for developers to come through to then feel comfortable enough to build on solidity in their case. And so they, they, they learned it through this year since it's an incredibly long-term strategy because like you do this hackathons maybe person will come twice in 2020 and once in 2021 and by 2022 they finally get their fourth one and finally do some project on ethereum and so similarly for game gems so like new ecosystem it does take quite a bit of touches so what we noticed is that you can engage somebody they build a couple of different hacks with you and then six months later they finally got to maybe it's timing maybe something percolated they read more about it but now they're like ready finally and so like the key there is to be consistent doing it like kind of like over and over again. Another place is forums. So there are like forums related to different game engines and phaser is one example. Godot is another example. And so people spend time there. And so you can find uh, game devs uh, there. They can have also different discord servers. There are some discord servers that aggregate indies and student organizations, probably another good place to find them. When it comes to studios, studios easier to find. They're open for business. They usually have the website, kind of professional presence, they have email or whatever means of communication they have. So like with studios, it's a lot easier to get in touch with them. The question there, when it comes to studios, is it, they have less freedom to, to explore things. They usually work on a particular budget. And so for them to, for blockchain, for them to make sense, to build web three game, as opposed to the game that they're used to. It has to be something very compelling. And with studios, I think what I see, generally speaking, is that 
gaming is extremely saturated. There's so many games out there. It's like very different from early days of like internet when I was like actually seeking out games. I was like, all right, like what do I play? <laughs> Today it's very different. It's so many games. And so some studios, they're finding on their own that, okay, be it Steam or be it mobile platforms like Apple or Google, it's just too many games. How do I stand out? I understand everything about the business of building the game. Like you pay three bucks to get the user. Here's where you acquire them. Advertisement works like the best for user acquisition, the other. But at the end of the day, it's extremely competitive on the other side of it. And it ends up being replicating Hollywood model in a sense that there's a big launch and more, more, more likely than not, you're not going to hit your box office goals. And so then you have this like small fraction of teams who are like, all right, I'm going to try this other world, which is nothing figured out in this other world except except for it's not competitive if i actually launch and i have the skill set i've built games before maybe i'll go and, and compete in this new on a greenfield medium and so people with this mindset they're like ready to go and explore speaking the bigger game studio is the more constraints there are around budget it comes back to this idea of what we talked about the middleman it's in the world of art, it's the art dealer. In the world of music, it's a music label. In the world of games, it's a publisher. And so publisher is the one that kind of gets to decide usually what game is being built in the first place, how much money, who gets, what's the revenue stream looks like later in terms of distribution of it. And so the bigger budget requirements are, the harder it is to, to work with a game studio. It's probably easier for some other ecosystems out there, like Polygon, like Solana comes to mind, who like more kind of lose with the kind of funding they have or maybe more like less careful more more active aggressive about it and i think near historically at least for the last four years was very consistent and like more disciplined approach which makes it harder it's like it's not you cannot like win somebody was just giving them a bunch of money or something but i'll say it ends up money uh, ends up not in practice being as you mentioned earlier like a big like motivator for people right if you people just motivated by money then inevitably run into a bunch of struggles through the development, they might just give up and quit. But yes, yeah, so I think generally speaking, that's how you find it. That's a really good strategy. And I hope that people listening, if they're interesting, adopt some of that playbook, obviously go to the Human Guild Discord and connect with people and share the communities that you're reaching. Do you guys have any more game jams on the pipeline for the rest of the year? Yeah, we likely will do one late in the year. We might do gaming section in, in a hackathon that Nier is doing around NierCon. But as far as our own game jam, that'll be like later in the year. Yeah. So that's an And I really like to share the metrics learned from the Ethereum community on how many touch points it takes to convert someone. I feel that's especially useful for funding because we don't really have much data to fund things. And there may be a bias to just want to see like immediate results or be too quick to judge something when we don't know if it's working or not. I can see how hackathons, conferences, they can all have the same problem or, or feature set. I'm also looking at in content, especially something like a podcast, right? YouTube. We're giving out grants for the marketing DAO for content being created today. But, and I'm going to be extremely selfish and biased, but obviously it's the things that I've got more information about this podcast. I see these episodes as being timeless. So while it may only be funded today, anyone can listen to it months into the future. And as the ecosystem grows, that's where the touch point and the, the conversion comes in. So it's really good to have that awareness that we just have to be very active, getting in front of people, giving them the tools to play around, being very flexible to enable them to dip in and out. And 
yeah, I guess it'd be a very fine line between it is normal to have four conferences or four hackathons or four podcasts for them to be activated and trying to optimize, like, can we make it three instead of four or... Yeah, and I think on the content side, what's interesting, or it comes to mind, that's a little bit, a little bit not as related, but what's very interesting, like I got surprised by this uh, recently in terms of content is I have a team of friends. I met them actually in the first hackathon that Mir did back in 2019, I think. They were building this little app called Pinky Promise, kind of like you, you make promises to your friends to do something and then hopefully you'll follow through and it's on blockchain. But fast forward to today, they are working on no code platform. They started with Web2, they already connected also Ethereum. They're going to connect near in four to five months from now. But what was interesting is that one of the apps that was built with their no coding platform is a very simple app that prepares people in US to pass citizenship test. And citizenship test in US is like very kind of like formulaic and also like relatively simple, I would say. But what they did is, so they, TikTok, they somehow figured out that there is a constant gap in terms of this particular topic. And so they created this very short videos, which is, are you ready to become an American citizen? What is capital of the United States? Is it San Francisco? Is it New York? Is it DC? And so they start getting this like insane amount of like views. I think they on average get like five, six million views per one of those. And they have an insane amount of like comments on them. And so now what they have is they, they just added the kind of the banner saying like, Hey, if you want to actually go through this, there's an app for it and you just click here. And so their app or completely organically get, gets like insane amount of traffic. And one of the top so smart. Uh, what's the name of the no code platform? I actually played with no code a third bit a couple of years ago. And I love it for a non-technical person. I love how once again, levels of abstraction. You enable people to do more without knowing about the more granular levels of the technology. And I think that's where we have to go in the same way that we have no idea how mobile yes. phones work, but you can do everything imagined on there. There's the building side of things. Yeah. yeah, I'll look up the name for you later. What's interesting about the no-code platform, we're like actually like really bullish at Human Guild on trying to find as many no-code platforms to be incubated on here as possible because what was interesting when I was talking to at some point earlier with NFT creators, I have surveyed it in roughly 300 NFT creators. What's very interesting about NFT creators, let's say from different other creators, physical world creators, is that NFT creators one and four is actually technically minded. They actually want to learn how to code in addition to their like art being, being their main skill set. But they also have the idea in mind of what they want to implement. And all those ideas can change and everything, but the idea here like uh, that people actually want to learn how to code and want to build something in Web3. And so if only there was like no code platform that allows them not spend two, three years trying to learn beginner stuff, but actually get moving a lot faster. And I've met a lot of people like this in New York system as well. And so well, then my commitment those. to you, and I'm going to try to be more diligent with this one following up than all the games, all the videos about games in here that I owe you. I met some good friends, some good contacts in the no coffee space. I think it was just before I got very active with New so it would have been late. No, early 2020, doesn't matter. I'm more than happy to bring one on the podcast and I guess introduce the no-code world to the near ecosystem and hopefully get people excited. And it'd be really interesting for me to try to present to him what near is and blockchain and like basically a meeting of two worlds. And once again, try to capture in a timeless conversation and replicate it as much as possible. A couple of questions that I have about no-code. I know that for the platforms that I've played with, what they've done is They've modularized the platform. So all the most popular components you basically have. So you can select them and mix and match them on a screen. 
And then there is conditional logic. So you can basically link, literally link from this box. It goes to this spreadsheet. You can see your data. And then with certain actions, the data modifies. And then other components just display the data on the spreadsheet kind of thing. So what I find really interesting is that I'm just trying to see how that connects to the Web3 world. So my question would be, would the no-code be a front-end solution and it connects to existing smart contracts? So hypothetically, I could use, what's it called, near names. It'd be amazing if I could build an entire new front-end for near names I own, even like the branding and everything, the user flow, et cetera. But it's the same smart contract. So at the end of the day, they're doing the same two or three functions. That would be, I guess, yep. the earlier stages, because I do wonder, like my mind doesn't quite compute how we could get to the point of building like smart contracts from scratch using no code. Where do you see the evolution right. of that or where are we at? We're definitely very early, generally speaking, on that. But I agree that there is probably a difference between allowing people opportunity to build like front ends very quickly to allowing people opportunity to do like full stack apps very quickly and also then figure out the smart contract and building new ones from scratch using no code platform. I'm not sure if that's possible, but I think there is no possibility at the same time to to maybe like showcase people what are the smart contracts that even exist. On year today, I think we have, I'm forgetting the exact number of smart contracts, but I think the idea is that the more you have, the, it kind of like the amount of things what's possible grows exponentially from there, right? Like you have this tool, these pieces, and if only like people were able to understand how many of them are out there, first of all, and it's fairly easy to find, but also what can you do with them going forward, combine them in different new way. I think the surface area of like innovation goes exponentially from there but actually not that person task in terms of like how like hundred percent. And, and, and that is a trend that I think that we really need to highlight and get people excited and thinking in those terms. I had a conversation with Nate from Mintbase. They see themselves as core infrastructure and we're already starting to see people building on top of the Mintbase stack. So Gorilla Shops would be an early example and there's more coming. Ref and Metapool, I know that they're both moving towards the integration and referral model. So basically anyone can pop up their front end using the ref stack and they get the referral fee. Same with Metapool. We eventually don't want to have our own dashboard. We want to be fully integrated with our partners and they get part of the fee. So it's definitely the first step to raise awareness about the smart contracts out there that you could build a front end for, whether it's a direct partnership with the team or whether it is all the early day applications that Matt Lockyer developed. Like for instance, there's near names, there's token farm. There is one that he did for like generative code, which is super cool and trip. There's a lot of things being produced by the near learner Academy, the boot camps. There's just so much raw code out there. So right. These devs are very busy. They move on. It was a side project, but that would be really cool. Especially if you want to start testing the waters. Like I know that no code can do front end beautifully. Maybe let's try to find some people that can help us connect that front end with the near blockchain, with the SDK. You need to look into it again. I know that they've been expanding all that functionality, but yeah, what a bright future we have ahead of us. Generally, there's also a lot of value in the connecting the dots because there's so many people building stuff on their own, in their own kind of silo, on their own free time. And I feel like when ecosystems like this grow, there, there's a big question of like, how do this all people can communicate actually? How do they come to? Yes, we have like Neocon. That's great. That's where people like will meet in person once a year. But how can we go like 
beyond this and actually is it the case that people need to go back to forums it's like forums seems like to be good more structured communication as opposed to like telegram channels a million of discord servers but then also people haven't used forums for the last 20 years on the internet so it's it's like tricky to figure out what is the right communication pattern but uh, i think one way or another we need to figure it out to start connecting some of those dots so people start like working together more and that's just naturally a big challenge then it's the event diagram between community and like builders and developers like the sweet spot is the middle because if you have pure raw community and that's a challenge that we see yeah. with the marketing down now we have a lot of communities that have recurrent funding every month and we're just trying to find a way to cut them off because because we're just asking them how does this get us closer to a billion people you guys aren't building anything there's no one within your community building anything if i were to ask you what near has developed in the last six months you have no idea what projects you're building on near for the last six months you have no idea Yep. This is not what I feel community funding should be going for. And uh, yeah, it's a challenge. I do feel forums are making a comeback. I also do feel like we're in a hyper-social stage post-COVID, which is ironic because now everyone's getting COVID again. But Sasha, I am mindful of your time. And there's one yep. question that I want to bring us back with the gaming world. I know that Apple did something really interesting around creating like an Apple games membership so that by paying the monthly mm -hmm. fee, you get access to a bunch of games within their platform. Apple Arcade. Yep. Yeah. Apple Can you tell Apple. that I'm not a gamer myself? <laughs> I got the first subscription when I bought my new machine and I never used it. It's actually expired already. But I guess my question is, there would be two aspects there. Uh, one would be the business model. We don't have to dive into that one just yet, although it'd be fascinating for people in the industry to think about it, maybe bundling some games. But the second one is what I'm most interested in now. Yep. Uh, around the distribution channel. Do you see scope for creating that kind of near arcade? Oh, it even sounds sick. Creating a near arcade where we can very easily showcase all the games and yeah, just have visibility, bring the gaming community, yep. have examples of what can be done for new developers, new studios. Yeah. So actually we have arcade themed near hub. So Human Guild has pretty much it's like themes like arcades inside of near hub, as well as when it comes to near con, we are also planning to essentially have arcade-like experience there. It, it will be not actual, probably arcades with the game inside of them, but it will be like a bunch of laptops that people, essentially like games will be st staged there, but people will be able to try the games essentially. And I feel like maybe one day the whole concept of arcades will come back in some form. But yeah, that, that's definitely the, the direction we're thinking about. That is amazing. I am looking forward to Nearcon. Are you guys using like brand new laptops? You're renting them because... Those laptops are going to get hacked the shit out of them. <laughs> Don't put your personal laptop there. <laughs> right. No, yeah, it's not going to be our personal laptops. I think every game will bring their own, but we'll have oh, to like, watch them. That is private keys are gone. I think that's, Sir, please, that's done. security first. Security <laughs> first. Don't enjoy the Wi-Fi. Yep. So last the uh, last Neocon was actually like fairly barbaric in a sense that people didn't have like much uh, over like physical, like gra graphicals and booths and, and anything like this. But at, at the same time, even in the first Neocon, people were able to play a couple games. There was Hash Rush there. So people were able to play strategy. There was Battlemon, the first version people were able to play and there was robots. So they were able to like, at least look at it. It was not playable, I believe, but were able to like chat to the founder and uh, look at the demo version of it. So we had of those last Neocon and we're going to have like 10 to 15 to 20, depending on how many people make it in person. It's amazing. It's all about getting to the magic moment. 
The first time that I heard the concept of magic moment was from Bees Stone from his book Stories a Little Bird Told Me, his experience in Twitter. And basically all these big tech companies now with proper mm. analytics, they can define the magic moment. It's that point where new users, I guess, like properly convert into returning and being active users. In Twitter, they figured out it was following 33 accounts. So they built the entire onboarding experience yep. to make sure that as soon as you signed up, just follow anyone. You just need to hit the 33 threshold. Follow Obama, Elon Musk, it doesn't matter. Just follow someone. So I feel like for near the magic moment is hands-on experience doing something on the blockchain that makes you feel like it's really cool. And once again, it inspires you to think what else could be done. Because that's all we need now. We need to convince people that near as a Web3 future of the internet open web solution is viable. And it's ironic because I feel that some of the protocols and blockchains may actually have the, how should we call it, the muggle moment. <laughs> You're using something and it's clunky and shitty and you wonder, what is the hype? Like, this doesn't work that well. That's right. Yeah, I think I agree on that front. When I think about this, I think of two things, actually. Both, so for near big piece is UX. I think when people try it in person, they're like immediately get blown away. Like for example, like I just onboarded my friend who stayed in my house for like last four days and he was like, oh my God, this is how near actually interaction works. I'm like, yeah, like that <laughs> exists for like last two years. He's like, oh my God, this is amazing. So that is definitely a magic moment that needs to be somehow like scaled up a bit. But the other side of it that's still missing, I think across all of the web three ecosystems, it is the use cases for normal people because Solana. For example, did events here. I was talking to the coffee shop owner in San Francisco where Solana paid it activation campaign. So they did free ice cream and free NFT to people. And so they were able to onboard a bunch of people from the street. But the moment people onboarded, the first thought was, all right, I heard crypto equals something about making money. What is the worth of my NFT? Where do I sell it? And that was like majority of people according to the owner of the coffee shop. So it seems like we're not in a <laughs> We're not in the right place yet as an industry where the moment you onboard people, they turn, the first thing they try is offboard. I know the feeling and that's why I'm a little bit grumpy towards some of the NFT industry because I feel like they ruined it for the rest of us. I created a custom NFT for a friend's birthday and Jordan helped me. I must have been one of the first users of the link drop and the near drop. It was very raw back in the day. I had like an Excel spreadsheet and I don't know what he was doing. He just copied in a bunch of codes and he really underestimated my audience. Most people were off their face and <laughs> not able to use their phone or redeem the NFT, but a handful that did. It was shocking. Everyone asked the same thing. How much is this worth? And I was like, it's a custom NFT made for someone's birthday. A, why would you want to sell it? And B, it obviously has no value. I minted it three hours ago to give it out here as a special moment in time. So we definitely have a long way to go. The cool thing is, we just need to prove that technology works get to that special magical moment and from there inspire as many people as possible to start their own creations because obviously we can't do it all yeah shout out all last at least shout out to jordan too because he's doing like amazing job in nft side of the ecosystem and yeah it also in a way like partially allowed us to focus on gaming because we're like like we're thinking about all these creators but it seems like somebody's doing an amazing job uh, on this other creators so we can go and Gold. Massive shout out to Gordon. He will definitely be a guest of the podcast. I'll try to get him in. I feel like his story is going to be pretty, pretty wild as well. Sasha, I am mindful of your time and we are almost at the two hour mark. Will be interesting to see how much this comes down after I take out all my toilet breaks. 
<laughs> now as we start wrapping it up, this is a rapid fire question, which the joke is that it usually means it's the second half of the podcast, but <laughs> I do have a meeting in five minutes, so we'll try to blast through them. You are very insightful on the stages of technology, philosophy, sales, working with founders. I'm really intrigued as to the sources of information. Are there any books that you've read recently that have had an impact in you that you would recommend to people? It could be even something further removed in time, just that would be worth for people to consider. Yeah, I tend to actually look up the book that I'm actually was downloading recently. I tend to read quite a bit and it comes in cycles when I have time, I tend to read. There is a book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. So that's about demographics and some other things about where the world is going, basically away from the globalized world we see today. That's an interesting book that I'm just getting started. And as well as a couple of days ago during Independence Day of US, Balaji released his book about how to create new country <laughs> called Network State. So that's another one I'm reading, definitely going to be reading a lot on I'm laughing because doing research for this podcast, I went to the Human Guild, the Next Creators podcast, shout out to your podcast. And I hadn't seen the shorts channel and I went into it and I saw myself. <laughs> several shorts of the interview <laughs> we had back in March. And one of the shorts is me recommending this book to you. <laughs> So maybe we should read it at the same time and have a book club. How does that sound? So we see, well, exactly. it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Sounds like I definitely need to have you back on. And yeah, is there anything else that we'd like to add before we wrap this one up? Amazing. Well, I'm going to be hitting you up to get some of the references for some of the names and the projects that we've mentioned. And yeah, if there's anything else that you want me to add or take out, let me know. Too easy. Sasha, thank yeah, you so much for your time. At the end, we'll keep in touch. All right. Thank Bye -bye. you. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, well, let's be honest, you are amazing! And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.